When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to the Slate Audiobook Club for the month of August 2016. I'm Katie Waldman, words correspondent at Slate, and I'm joined today in the D.C. studio by Slate culture editor Dan Coyce. Hello, how are you? I'm good. And in New York, we're joined by the Slate writer and editor Laura Anderson. Hey, Laura. Hi, Katie. So it's Children's Literature Month for the Slate Book Review. We've got a pop-up blog called Nightlight that will feature a different piece on that topic every single day until September. So please do check that out. And in the spirit of our blog, we are also discussing children's literature on our podcast. Namely, we'll dig into the eighth installment in the Harry Potter universe, Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. Do you guys say cursed or cursed? A cursed child. No, I think it's just cursed. <laughs> okay, it is the cursed child. A quick note that spoilers will follow. So if you haven't read Cursed Child yet and don't want to hear about the plot, you may want to turn us off and come back when you're done. So before we get into themes or story or even quality, there are several ways in which this book differs from the Harry Potter novels we know and love. Dan, what are some of those ways? Uh, well, to start with, it is not written by J.K. Rowling. Yes. So number one. <laughs> Big one. Uh, many people's radars when they pick up this book will be they handle it very cannily on the front cover. I'm looking at your hardcover right now, which is that J.K. Rowling's name is in big letters. And then it says above that based on original on an original news story by uh, and then down at the bottom it says a new play by Jack Thorne. So yes, so this is not written by J.K. Rowling, it's written by Jack Thorne. Jack Thorne is a playwright. Also, this book is a play. It is a play script for the um, gargantuan two-evening extravaganza currently being put on on the West End in London. Uh, written by Jack Thorne um, and from a story that J.K. Rowling worked up with uh, Jack Thorne, uh, the playwright, and John Tiffany, the director of the show. Cool. So, Laura, what did you make of reading Harry Potter in script form? Well, I found that, as Dan Coyce wrote in his review of the book, that for guy. <laughs> uh, it lacked a lot of the things that I really loved about Harry Potter, namely a lot of description of the world, the universe itself, of Hogwarts, you know, every last moving staircase and portrait and, you know, extremely detailed menu of every meal served in the Great Hall. Um, you know, those are really fun details to read, whether, well, I mean, I, I read most of the Harry Potter books as a kid, so I really enjoyed them there, and I also enjoyed them as an adult. This uh, script lacks pretty much any detail like that. There's, I think that you, you are relied on much more as a reader to use your imagination to try to sort of imagine what's going on, and, and the script does not really give you very much help there. Right. Or at least that was my experience. Yeah, and my impression is that the production in London is, like, fantastic at this, 
Like that, yeah, but I had a really hard time even imagining how it too. could be possible for some of these scenes to be staged. Me too. Like the you know the kind of magic that that Rowling and, and the, her collaborators put into this play is the kind of stuff that if they pull it off on a stage, it would be incredible to see people transfiguring into other people and books attacking someone out of a bookshelf and now just tons of stuff and also like not just world building but worlds building as we'll get into it. There's a bunch of sort of alternate universes that are alternate timelines that the characters end up in and this. And those are the kinds of things that if, Ro- if Rowling had written this novel, uh, I would have just feasted on page after page of the world building, which she is so good at. Here, we just have to imagine it based on very slim pickings in the stage directions of the play. And it got frustrating to me, as it did for you, Laura, to feel like, ah, oh, I bet I bet there's amazing stuff here, but I'm not privy to it. It's not in the script. They don't even give me photos. All I have is uh, – is my imagination, which is not as good as J.K. Rowling's imagination. That's why I want her to write the Harry Potter books and not other randos. I mean, I do think that in a way this script is coasting on the amazing job that J.K. Rowling did before on all the books because I agree with you. It's kind of spare with that description, but she hits just enough of those sort of memory points that you start building it in yourself. So basically what I want to say is you guys are a bunch of spoil sports. It was really fun. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, basically all all she has to do is say, oh, and then Sacre Blue, there's Floor um, in the Triwizard Tournament. And I remember those descriptions and I see it in my head again. And so I think this book does a really artful job of just like notating enough of what we remember from the past books that we don't feel, or at least I didn't feel, uh, sort of robbed. Well, my my interpretation of that is a little bit less generous, which is that I think that this, you know, play sort of like leaned too much on, borrowed too much from the earlier books and was almost a little bit lazy in sort of drawing from these scenes that everyone knows and remembers. And I, I just wasn't, I wasn't expecting this play to take place so much in the past in scenes that uh, we already know and and remember from the from the books that Rowling wrote. And um, I, I was a little disappointed by how little original plot kind of went into it. Yeah, same here. And so maybe it might be helpful at this point to try at least a little bit to untangle this plot. I don't know that I have the wherewithal to pull it off entirely, but it revolves around Harry's son, Albus, who we meet in the final scene of Deathly Hallows, and Draco Malfoy's son, Scorpius, who we sort of see off in the distance in that final scene of Deathly Hallows. Uh, And it starts in their first year in Hogwarts when they become friends on the Hogwarts Express, even though they should be sort of enemies by everything we know about them up till now. And it becomes clear over the intervening years that one reason that Albus gets along so well with Scorpius is that he doesn't really get along that well with his dad, with Harry. Um, He gets put into Slytherin, uh, unlike Harry, of course, who is a famous Gryffindor, though who had the choice to be put in Slytherin but chose not to. And he fights a lot with Harry, but he and Scorpius become best, best, best friends. And the action of – the most of the action of the play – takes place during Albus and Scorpius's fourth year when they became become obsessed with um, solving the thing that went wrong in the fourth book of Harry Potter in Goblet of Fire, the death of Cedric Diggory, played, of course, by Robert Pattinson and all our imaginations. <laughs> um, and you almost get the feeling that Albus and Scorpius have, like, read 
Harry Potter yes. and the Goblet of Fire. Yes. Like, they know so much mm-hmm. about the detail. One of my favorite scenes of this book is where they're talking about the Yule Ball in that book. And they're like, in this new—sorry, you're going to get hit there. But in this new alternate universe that we have that we found ourselves in, the, you know, Hermione and Ron took different people to the Yule Ball. And oh, then, like, my God. And it changed everything. Yeah. And it's like, why on earth would Albus and Scorpius know who took whom to the Yule Ball in, you know, right. 22 years ago? Right. There's this, like, vague—there's this thing— there's this vague thing put in that Scorpius is like a nerd, so he reads a lot, including he read the histories of the Hogwarts Wars, which are basically like the the seven Harry Potter books. Uh, <laughs> but um, but yes, that like makes no sense at all. That's crazy. And so they travel back in time with the help of a time turner, the device we of course know from the third book, Prisoner of Azkaban, with this mysterious other character, Delphi. Delphi, Delphi, I think it's Delphi, who uh, is supposedly the uh, like cousin. She's like the niece, the of- niece of Amos Diggory, Cedric's dad, so Cedric's yeah. cousin, but who no one's ever heard of before. Mm-hmm. Uh, and with her help, they travel back in time to try and save Cedric by keeping him from co-winning the Triwizard Tournament. Right, that's their goal. And the weird thing there, too, just side note, is so many people died in the Hogwarts Wars. Yeah. So it's very strange that they would just sort of focus or zero in on this one character. Right. But anyway. <laughs> this is the one that you care about? Um, yeah. What about Lupin? You don't care about right. like, your, 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 right. you are, you your Uncle your, Fred? Yes. Your yeah. Uncle Fred or like this or, or the, the both the parents of this kid you know who were killed like just after this kid was born, Tonks and Lupin's. Uh, daughter, I forget what that kid's name oh, is. Yeah. Victoire? No, that's Fleur's kid. <laughs> um, but yes, like yes, that you're absolutely right, Katie. That that's that's weird. Um, yeah, and I thought no, not only was it just a weird choice, but it was I did not buy for a second the motivation that I it did not make any sense at all to me from an an emotional or you know personality standpoint that Albus would get lashed on to this idea that he has to go save Cedric. Right. It, it, like, that part seemed very underdeveloped. Well, I bought that he just needed some kind of MacGuffin. Like, he needed some mission or purpose. And really, this was all about, like, the edible daddy issue thing. Um, and right. so, like, it, it actually persuaded me that, look, it didn't have to be Cedric, but it happened to be Cedric. Uh it definitely sounds, Katie, like you had lower expectations for this book going in yes. than we did. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that's the thing. Like, I wasn't expected to be moved or transported by it. I, I've always enjoyed the Harry Potter books, but I don't think they were a touchstone for me in the way that they were for a lot of my friends growing up. Um, and so I just, like, took a lot of pleasure in seeing these characters doing things that I, like, half expected them to do already and, you know, just – um remembering what it was like to read a beloved childhood book, but I don't think I had as much invested in it as a lot of people. I definitely had plenty invested in yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, And I mean, and which is like slightly lame in that it's not like I read the Harry Potter books as a kid. I read them as in my 20s, but they were definitely like very transporting at that time. And I was a was a big fan and also devoted a huge amount of my like early culture journalism output to writing <laughs> endlessly about a million different permutations of of Harry Potter philia. And so, yeah, I definitely, you know, I knew that this would be a different experience. It's not like I was surprised that it was a script. But I also found this play sort of uniquely ill-suited, even among plays, to being presented in script form because it's so much of it is dependent on characters 
getting from set piece to set piece or explaining what just happened in that set piece to each other or like explaining the various vagaries of the earlier Harry Potter books or their mission or whatever, or just telling each other how they feel that it felt in the end to me, you know, I think I compared it at one point to, it was like reading the script for a Super Bowl halftime show (laughs) where the words are essentially the least interesting part of what the entire aesthetic experience is but the words are the only part we get because it's a play script and that was like very frustrating to me in it and it made the book feel to me like a $30 advertisement for a $200 theater ticket I mean can we talk a little bit about one of in your review I thought this was really smart you did say like the freshest part of it was this character Scorpius who doesn't have an antecedent in the Harry Potter universe as we know it yeah um, and he is just like – he's so charming and delightful. He reminded me of Boris from The Goldfinch actually, the kind of um, – <laughs> Oh, that's fun. I don't know. Uh, wisecracking, nerdy sidekick who is actually sort of the heart and soul of the book. But um, I don't know. Laura, did you have a reaction to Scorpius, yay or nay? I certainly enjoyed Scorpius. I mean, you know, Scorpius and Albus get the most dialogue between them and Scorpius even gets this segment of the book where he is alone in an alternate – future, alternate reality, I guess, because Albus has not been born because Harry Potter died. And he has to sort of grapple with the fact that in this alternate universe, he's actually quite popular, which he isn't in the original universe that he came from. So, yeah, I mean, you're right that I think he is kind of the heart and soul of the book. He makes the right choice there. You know, like he has the opportunity to say, you know what, I like being popular and I'm going to stay in this reality. But he makes the right decision. Um, but he also just reminded me a great deal of Hermione. You know, he's like he played the role of the of the nerd who knows everything. And so like and that I, I think that lacking um, the kind of characterization and detail that you get from a novel, I, I maybe this was just, you know, I just kind of defaulted in my brain to thinking of him as like playing a Hermione role. It's like blonde in, Hermione. Hmm. Yeah. Blonde yeah. male Hermione. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Although with like a little bit of pathos to him that Hermione didn't have at first and that there's this odd rumor sweeping around that, in fact, he's Voldemort's son, which I thought gave him like a little bit more depth than just being this story's version of Hermione. Like he struggles with that. He struggles with his parentage and his lineage in a way that Hermione never really does in the books. Um, his mom dies. Right. Early his on. mom dies. That's, that's, that's sad, et cetera. Uh, and so, you know, I, I appreciated those things about him. And I, and I agree with you, Katie, that he was the most, I agree with you in, who, in agreeing with me <laughs> in what I wrote that, uh, he's the most appealing character, uh, the most appealing new character in this. But then there's, there's other new characters, right? There's Delphi, who's the, who comes out of nowhere, presents herself as, uh, Amos Diggory's niece, Cedric Diggory's cousin. And turns out to be, spoiler, the villain and Voldemort's daughter. Here is where I would like to present what I think is the most damning case against this book, which was given to me by my daughter, who's 11. So she, I asked her what she thought of the book. She's a huge Harry Potter. So she read it? Oh, yeah. She read it. Did she read it before you did? She finished it before I did. She read it. She and uh, her best friend went to a bookstore party on Saturday night, bought it at midnight. She went home and just stayed up and read it. So, like, she finished it by, like... 2.30 2.30 in the morning or something. And uh, I asked her what she thought of it. And she said, oh, she really likes Scorpius. She thinks Scorpius is the best new character. She liked that um, Albus was in Slytherin. She thought that was great. Um, she also thought some parts of it were weird or didn't make sense. But she said, that I thought the dumbest part 
was Delphi because like Voldemort's daughter, that's so fan fiction. <laughs> like every other fan fiction is written about Voldemort's imaginary kid and everyone writes that and I've read it a million times and I can't believe that they did it in this thing. They, they should have come up with something better. So the idea that we have reached the point now at which so much fan fiction has been written about Harry Potter that it maybe is actually impossible to come up with a new thing to do with these characters uh, is notable to me and makes me feel a little less upset at J.K. <laughs> Rowling, who maybe has just like been painted in a corner. If She knows that we all want more stories with these characters. Uh, she knows that we want more, but there's like no story that would satisfy us probably. And, uh, and there's no story that hasn't already been written before by some, like someone on the internet. Yeah. And I think perhaps her solution to that problem is just to default to complete fan service. So if you look at this book, it's just, you know, and you pointed this out in your review too, it's just a roll call of favored Harry Potter characters. So Snape, you see, and you see Dumbledore and, um, you return to all these sort of glowing moments from your memory and, I don't know. I sort of have a sense that this book is a book about the experience of writing the Harry Potter franchise or or it's sort of wrestling with what it means to write the Harry Potter books. Um, and in in one way, it's because like the plot is premised on like how awful would it be if a single detail in this universe were changed? So it's sort of a retort to fans who said, but like, what if, what if Cedric hadn't died? What right. if this other thing? Right. And her reply is like, no, you know how much you love all these books. If a single thing were different, all hell would break loose. So that's one thing. And then the other thing is that I think a big theme here is when is the past over? When is the story told? Um, can we go back and tinker with what has already happened? And she kind of gives an ambivalent answer. Like, yes, you can, and it can be an enjoyable installment in this franchise. But at the same time, no, you actually probably shouldn't go back and try to change the past, which is a strong argument for maybe we should just let the Harry Potter universe be and not tinker anymore. I mean, that seems to be where she has come down on this question. I mean, who knows, really? But she did say at the premiere in London on Sunday that the story of Harry Potter is done. Like, yes. this is it. And I, she also left it open that uh, the story of Albus Potter is <laughs> not done necessarily. But she did make sort of an affirmative statement that she feels like she has finished telling the story. Uh, Laura, as I'm sure you know, uh, that doesn't mean that there won't be one million more vague pronouncements about the characters and things we should know about them uh, that are just sort of thrown out there on Pottermore. No, of course. Um, yes, Rowling is famous for issuing new proclamations about beloved characters, um, including, you know, that Dumbledore was gay. There are many others, m most of which I can't remember, which is, and, you know, she's also said in the past that she was done with Harry Potter. She said that after mm -hmm. the seventh book. So who knows? I, you know, cannot blame her for continuing to revisit this thing that is her most, the most popular thing that she or, or really like anyone will ever do in the history of children's literature. But I don't know if I, uh, if I totally believe her when she says that she's completely done with this now. I mean, I hope she's not. Like I complain, I just spent an entire blog post and this entire podcast complaining about this book, but I'm still happy it exists. I mean, I, I, and I'll be really happy if I ever somehow managed to like finagle my way into tickets for this play you know i i would be delighted to see these characters on a stage i would be delighted for her to write another play or to write another movie i'll go see fantastic beasts and where to find them like i'm not as 
picky as I can be about the way these stories get told, I would rather have more stories with these characters than not have them. Yeah, and I also think that our relationship to the Harry Potter books is kind of like the relationship of characters in that world to Harry Potter himself. It's just like this beloved, celebrated, wonderful thing, and there are just so many expectations that are put on, in Harry's, in Albus's case, Harry's son. Right. Um, and in our case, sort of the son of that, of that series of books. So sort of the, the offspring of the Harry Potter books. And so, like there's a similar dynamic happening within the book and with us. Um, so, I mean, I like Harry Potter, the character. I like these books, the um, cultural property. So, All right. So I want to ask a very important question to you, Laura, who has come out strongly in the pages of Slate uh, against a sort of other vague proclamation that J.K. Rowling made recently, which was that she she recently said, oh, maybe I shouldn't have had Hermione and Ron get together. Maybe it should have been Hermione and Harry. I don't know. I just I thought of that when I first came up with it and then I carried through. But then as I was writing it, maybe I changed my mind. And you wrote in Slate that Hermione and Ron belong together and you don't care what J.K. Rowling says. Uh, what evidence, pro or con, does this book give you for your your side on this important issue? Well, I'm glad that this book completely ignored that proclamation by J.K. Rowling. To yeah. me, the the sort of most prominent and uh, most successful bit of fan service were all the various scenes and permutations of the Ron-Hermione relationship. Um, In the good, true, correct reality um, that we know goes forth after the seventh book of Harry Potter, they are married and Hermione is minister for magic. Um, Ron Hermione is Hillary Clinton, basically. Hermione. (laughs) She's very Hillary Clinton, yeah. Yeah. So true. Um, Ron owns a joke sweet shop business. Is that is it both? Is it just like I think you totally eat the like, things, but they're also funny. Well, I thought it was <laughs> like, funny I thought it was like basically Weasley's wizard wheezes, yeah. isn't it? I like, know. So like what? So anyway, I I that that part seemed sort of strange to me, just because I didn't seem that there was so much of a of a hint of that happening. And I think it was just that J.K. Rowling would feel bad about admitting that Ron is not actually suited to any job. <laughs> Well, he also, you know, stays home and takes care of the kids, we find out in this He's in Tim Kaine. So that's good. He's Tim Kaine. He's the dad <laughs> and, like, the jokey dad. And Though without any responsibility. I love all the symbolism right. and no, you I mean, are it's discovering so, here, Katie. But it's so true. Like, the forces of darkness and fear versus, like, unity and hope. Basically, this is a political allegory for our time. Uh, let's return to the more Sorry. important question, <laughs> which is so, Hermione and Ron. So we discover in this play in all the sort of alternate realities that like in every one of them, Ron and Hermione are destined to be together. They're, there's nothing that can keep them apart, not even the death of Harry Potter and the, you know, the reign of, of terror and evil that happens in the second alternate reality, not even Ron getting married to Padma. Is that who he marries in the first yeah, alternate Padma. reality? And he's like deeply unhappy. And yet and they discover that they actually of course, really love each other. There are just like some really like I, every I love that every every reality had a Hermione and Ron moment. And then there is also the moment where Albus uh, takes Polyjuice potion potion and becomes Ron and has a very funny uh, exchange mm. with Hermione. Yes, uh, in that front of her glimpse office. into Harry Hermione and Ron's married life uh, and the way they talk to each other, even when Ron is being played by someone else, is quite delightful. Uh, and a great reminder that it would, in fact, be like super annoying to be married to Ron <laughs> uh, overall. <laughs> yeah. Or but even 
it would also be super annoying to have these characters as parents, I thought. And I wonder, actually, Dan, reading this as a father, did this give you any fresh insight into Harry as a father? Like, how is he as a dad? Uh, he is just as bad at being a dad as all the rest of us are. Like, I okay. did like that aspect of this book, of this play, that uh, that Harry, you know, once the golden boy of Hogwarts, is now just a sort of a frustrated suburban dad who's not who doesn't really get his kid. He's got one kid who really reminds him of himself, his older son James, who's like who likes adventure and plays Quidditch and is like sociable and stuff. And then he's got Albus, who's weirder and darker and is not good at flying and and is a Slytherin and he just doesn't get him and he he fights with him and he says mean things to him that he regrets later and and he tries through the book to be a good parent but makes a bunch of really big mistakes and i i found that i found that a kind of remarkable choice on the part of this trio of creators but one that does seem a little bit driven by rolling i mean that would be my guess she i think parenting is something that has always been close to her heart as a topic but something that doesn't play a lot into the the first seven Harry Potter books because Harry doesn't have parents. So we never really meet Hermione's parents. The relationship between Ron and his mom and the Weasley kids in general and their mom is a very charged and interesting one. And the relationship between Harry and Dumbledore, which becomes the sort of father-son relationship in those books, uh, is is very similar in many ways to the relationship between Harry and Albus in this one. And I liked that choice. I liked the choice to make him just not that good at at this in the way that many of us who are good at lots of other stuff find ourselves stymied by our children. Yeah. I mean, Laura, do you do you feel the same way? I got to say I loved the whole daddy issues theme here. I thought like every character that we grow to care about has some sort of parental problem and that was the part that emotionally hit me the hardest. Although I also don't think the thing that Harry said to Albus, he said, I sometimes wish you weren't my son. That didn't seem like as catastrophically cruel as the plot makes it out to be. Uh, say it to your kid someday and okay, see what happens. Okay, we'll see. <laughs> I, yeah, I kind of like that um, I, this uh, play sort of shines a light on the double standard, which is that like kids can say horrible things to their parents, but parents can't say the same thing back to their kids because parents will scar their children. So um, true. So <laughs> true. Oh, my God. But they're late in the book. Oh, so one thing this is uh, this allows me to talk about another thing that I actually kind of enjoyed about this script, which is that Draco Malfoy turns out to be like not a bad guy. Yeah, but yeah. I know. Harry, dude. Yeah. Harry and Draco are talking when Albus and Scorpius are lost in the past. And Harry says, we have both tried to give our sons not what they needed, but what we needed. And it's an extremely on the nose <laughs> summation of what has gone on in this it play. It punched me in the nose. That <laughs> but you know what? Yeah, I it, it rang true to me emotionally. It definitely. It did, and I, you know, Harry has always been kind of annoyingly self-absorbed and, like, irritable and um, has a huge chip on his shoulder. I mean, you know, understandably about being the chosen one, but, like, it, you know, he's, like, as as a character, he's always kind of, like, graded on my nerves a little bit, and so I actually kind of like that he turned out to be this not-so-great dad because that, that just, like, rang true to me with what I know about Harry. Yeah. Okay. I also just want to clarify for posterity in case I have children and you all think I'm going to be a terrible mom. (laughs) This whole, I sometimes wish you weren't my son. The reason it struck me as like an important line of dialogue in this play and something that 
I think is worth mulling over is because it's basically about this theme of acceptance and saying, you know, I wish these things hadn't happened and yet they did. And that's sort of like the entire engine of the plot is I wish that Cedric hadn't died. I wish that these various details in the universe hadn't unfolded in the the way that they did. And the journey of the book is sort of, well, of course you wish that things were different. Of course, you know, it's not perfect. And yet we go through and we muddle through and it actually turns out great in the end or, or acceptable in the end. And so I thought that was actually a nice sort of uh, moment of cohesion or like a, a thread drawing a bunch of these different plot lines together. Yeah, I think that that's true. Um, that leads me to a question that this that all time travel narratives must answer, which is, for example, we're in this world where Voldemort rules and uh, Hermione and Ron are still part of the like the rebellion, the underground, along with Snape and and, and basically it's just them. <laughs> um, and uh, and they like all make this choice, like well, better better to die in this world or disappear in this world. Better to have this world disappear if we can know in our heads that some other world exists where things are better. And that is like the that's the classic sci-fi extension of that question you ask: What if things could be different? Then what you're really asking is: What if the me I know as myself right now could blip out like that and be replaced somewhere else by another me, a different consciousness, but also sort of the same? It's a fun, like textual question to play with, and it's also an interesting sort of metaphysical question to play with. Play with. Would you trade the life? the bad life you have right now for some other person having a better life who's kind of you and also kind of not. It's a difficult thing to grapple with. And it's, and it's something that the play only kind of barely manages to make like coherent from a, from a purely plot level. Yeah. I don't have an answer to that, but I do think it's interesting that Rowling frames the Harry Potter world that we have come to know as the best of all possible worlds. Like it's not like they, at the end, go and stop Voldemort from killing Harry's parents. Right. Um, or they don't kill Voldemort right there. There's a whole bunch of them. Maybe they could have taken him on. Um, and then who knows how many lives would have been spared. Wait, that's crazy. Why didn't they do I that? I know, right? I was so frustrated. <laughs> I was thinking like, oh, that would be a batshit ending if she totally like spun the Harry Potter universe off its tracks and said, and then Voldemort was done and, and everyone then, lived. And that so, – so this would be tricky – but Rowling has enough money to pull this off. Hmm. Then she sends people into every house in the world and steals all their Harry Potter books and deletes them off their Kindles <laughs> because they never happened anymore. Oh, They've wow. completely overturned the world that we know from those seven books and the books themselves blink out of existence. All that is left is Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. Oh, God. That'd be awesome, right? Does she still have her money, though? Uh, well, uh, well, I guess she wouldn't give that. Well, she probably would have spent it all on this effort. So in a way, we go back to zero. <laughs> Prophecies can right. be broken. That's yeah, right. Nothing uh, is sentenced. That down. is a really interesting point that like if the argument of this is that you should give up, you should be willing to sacrifice the world you have now if you know there's a possibility for some better world to exist. Indisputably, the wizarding world would have been better if Voldemort had never actually gone on of his his original reign of terror. Mm-hmm. So why didn't they do that? Right. And that's where I come down to this is a book about, you know, hey, fans, I know you maybe wish that your pet character hadn't died, but this is the best of all possible universes. And you know you love Harry Potter. So don't wish for anything to be changed. 
Uh, I have one other question if if we have time. And I don't know, Laura, if you have another thing you want to hit. Oh, well, I just wanted to get back to the metaphysics, which I thought were extremely unsatisfying. Oh, do it. Tell us. Tell us. Well, okay. So when Scorpius and Albus get back from their first attempt at changing the path of Cedric Diggory's existence, um, they they have a conversation with Delphi. I'm pronouncing it Delphi. And like she's somehow like even though all of these things have changed, she somehow is still familiar with the conversation they had before Scorpius and Albus traveled through time. And that just completely like defies, I think, the logic of time travel, like everything is supposed to be different. So how did she still remember everything that they said before they time traveled? But it's not so different. Like Cedric still won and was killed in that universe. Right. right. So this this was the universe where things are only slightly different. Right. Where it's just like a little bit different. So it's not so different that that Delphi wasn't still born of Voldemort and didn't go find them and set them off on this quest. And they had a, a very similar conversation before they went back in time. Uh, and then they come back. You're right that the metaphysics are tricky. Uh, yes. And, I, and, I found, and arguably yeah. no, you're wrong. Right. It's possible. Um but I, I don't know. So this this script made me remember what is so great about Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, which deals with time travel in this very subtle and logical way. Extremely in which, logical. In which Harry discovers that, like, oh, he travels back in time, but he cannot change the outcome of things because it is already set. And in fact, he discovers that, you know, he is he is required to play a role in order for he, he like sends a Patronus in order to um, make sure that things turn out the way that they've already turned out. Right. And, you know, that is a sort of view of time travel that I guess I had assumed just sort of like uh, would be persistent throughout the universe of Harry Potter that like it's actually not possible to change the past. And the fact that this script did away with that law of the universe kind of bothered me. Yeah, that's a good mm-hmm. point. Like it, it is there. Those So those are like the two sci-fi philosophies of time travel that the one that you can change the past and create alternate versions of the present, the back to the future style and the other the prisoner of azkaban style that you can go back in time but everything you do happened the happened in real life already you just maybe don't understand it well enough that's a version of which like wizards see themselves and then go insane but like you're right that those are two opposing views and that this does really muddy up the metaphysics of the harry potter universe something something awful dan what was knowing sorry no, no, just knowing Katie's uh, interpretation of the symbolism of all of that uh, makes me feel a little bit better about it. Yeah, yeah. I, it might be accidental, but yes. <laughs> uh, so in, on the fan service front and in the giving characters, the beloved lost characters, the moments we needed, the thing that was most gratifying to me in this play was the Snape sequence. Mm. Uh, Snape was, has long been my favorite character in Harry Potter, the character of the most weirdness and depth and the best lines. That was even before he was played by Alan Rickman. And so the scene we get with him, which takes place in the nightmare version of the present in which Voldemort rules and Hogwarts is, is still ruled by, is still run by Umbridge. And, uh, but Snape was never unveiled as a double agent for Dumbledore. He never had to, he never had to let anyone know that that happened because Voldemort won so early that that never even became an issue. 
And so Snape remains at Hogwarts. Uh, Umbridge suspects him and other people suspect him, but no one has ever been able to prove he wasn't loyal to Voldemort. But he is, in fact, still working for Dumbledore's army. Uh, him and Hermione and Ron, as I said, are the only ones. And he gets a like a really sort of glorious, valiant scene of helping Albus and Scorpius across the the Hogwarts grounds, trying to get them where they need to go while Dementors circle and he battles them and eventually gives up his life and soul to help them get where they're going. But before that happens, he we get to see him process the sacrifice that his other universe self made. And seeing Snape get to have someone acknowledge his innate goodness was quite moving to me. Like Snape never gets that in the original book, right? He he dies and he gives Harry the information he needs by pulling a memory out of his brain. But we never get to see him know that we, the reader, or that people in this world know that he is good. Right. Uh, and indeed that Scorpius's best friend is named for him, yeah. Albus Severus Snape. Yes. Yeah, that um, was that was beautiful. That was really <laughs> nice. I really liked that scene and I really liked that moment. And and so it does suggest that that going back to the well, as Rowling does in this book, is not all necessarily a bad thing. It can deepen our relationships with these characters in interesting ways. The problem is it didn't like deepen my relationship with that many of the other characters. Ludo Bagman, you didn't feel a much <laughs> Did not get, stronger connection. I found him even, maybe even 10% more annoying than before. But no. Okay, can I actually defend Ludo Bagman? I thought Ludo Bagman's dialogue was Slay kind pitch. of funny. He had some really funny lines about Cedric Diggory. Um, I actually wrote some of them down for this podcast. Right, tell me. Don't damage our Diggory, Mr. Dragon. Come on, that was pretty funny. <laughs> And this one is also very good. Dog diggity, Cedric Diggory. You are a doggy dynamo. <laughs> He's found on, his guys. audience it's great. Uh, across all the <laughs> Jesus Christ, Laura. <laughs> uh, a nice moment of comic relief. It's true that this play seems a little unfunny sometimes. Uh, and that that was a clear attempt to give the play a moment of comic relief. There's also this like this long setup for a joke that I didn't even get about the Bobatons fans oh, yeah. not cheering, then cheering a little more. Then the the, the kicker is that they cheer more. Like, right. I didn't get that joke. Right. I guess Laura, I explain it yeah. because you no, I, you I get can't Bagman. Explain it. Okay. You just you just explained it. There's nothing funny about it. It's just they they cheer louder every time. Yeah, that's like another thing where it's like I, there must be something on stage that makes that really funny. I bet. All right, Laura, I appreciate your defending of Ludo Bagman and his role in this play. But, Anytime. But no, I, I cannot I cannot co-sign that defense. Do you guys have anything uh, that you want to hit on besides what we have already said? Uh, I mean, one thing that we notably have not really talked about is um, the sort of action sequences that are scattered through this book, which, you know, as I said before, are sort of big on stage and you can sort of it's hard to imagine how they would play. But there are I mean, there's like a real wizarding duel that happens on stage. There's this that scene where um where our hero, our hero, our two heroes and the villain having polyjuice themselves into Harry, Ron, and Hermione get to have one last Harry, Ron, and Hermione adventure where they're trying to like get something out of that bookshelf or the they're trying to find the time turner, turner yeah. right? Uh, which is like very dependent once again on riddles. How did you guys feel about those sequences and were they interesting or exciting to you? The action stuff? Did you, were you into the riddles? Like, what did you think? 
I thought that video was, was ridiculous. Maybe, Laura, if you could uncover some hidden humor or brilliance in <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, did I you mean, love that riddle like I you was, love Ludo Bagman? No, I, I hated it so much. The idea <laughs> that, like, the most brilliant witch in the history of witchcraft and wizardry, who is the minister for magic, right. would protect this extremely valuable and dangerous tool with a riddle that a child could solve. Is like just three like different riddles that three different children solve. Yes. yes. Um, yeah. that w- they're not even good riddles. They're really just like very, they're, they're barely riddles, I would say. One of them is just about the letter D. Yes. You know, it's like, that's not a riddle. That's... In my political like, allegory, this is Hillary's uh, Pokemon go to the polls moment. No, this is her emails. This oh, is Hillary's emails. This yeah. is her emails. Bad security <laughs> uh, on the bookshelf means that anyone can crack it. Like WikiLeaks is going to get that time turner yeah. at any moment. Uh, yes, I agree with you, Laura, that that's insane. Like that's terrible. There's no two-factor authorization on that bookshelf or on those riddles. She should be like her phone should buzz when someone attempts to answer those riddles and she should be back there in a flash. And they don't need to be riddles. They could just be a password you say out loud. Yeah. Like when even when even the door to Moria and Lord of the Rings has better protection than something in Harry Potter, something has gone horribly wrong with the this imagination of the Harry Potter universe. Yeah, she wanted the time turner to be stolen, clearly. Uh, yeah, because she's what? Because she's a Hillary Clinton. She, to, she's a sleeper agent. She has, she's a, a, sleeper she has agent. No, she has a death wish because she no longer wants to be married to Ron. That must in, be what it is. In, uh, someone, okay, now it all makes sense. There's actually no, no. there's no divorce uh, allowed in wizarding <laughs> marriages. So that's what you got to do if you need to get out of it. Um, that was a joke. I obviously think they have the greatest marriage in all of literature. But yeah. um, to get back to your question about action, Dan. I So that's, I mean, the, the other thing that made the scene with the riddle so perplexing is that the idea of a bookcase coming to life and attacking these people is in and of itself, like, very cool. And, like, I, that was the scene where I actually kind of imagined it and also really wanted to know what it looks like on stage. Right. And, like, if they had just sort of, like, stuck with that instead of getting sucked into this dumb riddle, I think it, it could have continued to be a really good scene without all of the questions about Hermione's competence as a as the Minister for Magic. If you um, Google Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, one of the production photos from the play is them at that bookcase. So you can at least get a sense of like what it looks like. It doesn't explain how how they get sucked into it or whatever. But at the very least, you can see what the bookcase looks like. That's free. If you want any more, it's 200 pounds per ticket. Hmm. Is that for both yeah. both halves or just per per half? I think yeah. if you well, so it's moot because no tickets are available. Uh, <laughs> I know because I looked for every single month the tickets are currently on sale for, and zero tickets are available in any of those months. Um, they're releasing more tickets later this week, so I will fail to buy them then. If you could buy them, I believe it's about a hundred pounds per ticket per show, so it would be two hundred pounds to see both of them. Would you spend that? I mean, if if any of us had it, if if we had it, it just like lying the oppor- no, or just like the opportunity. Sorry, if you, any of us had the opportunity to spend it, would you spend that on this play? Probably not, because I'd be saving for Hamilton. Obviously, oh, honestly, right, right, right. right. Yeah. Laura, uh, I can't remember. Have you seen Hamilton? I have seen Hamilton. Oh, great, great. Uh, I, and I actually also bought. So I. I, I, this is getting us way off topic, but I, sure. I won the Hamilton lottery just a few days after I had bought tickets for, to see Hamilton in this coming February. Um, so I, like, I already spent like $200 a ticket on Hamilton tickets, which makes the idea of 200 pounds to see Harry Potter seem a little more reasonable. Sure. Mm. Well, especially think, because I mean, you'll be able to sell those Hamilton tickets for 400 bucks each. 
Oh, I'm still going. I'm going to say that's although that's a good idea. Yeah. But um, you know, reading this script um did did make me want to see it. It made me want to see the action, and it also made me want to see the the acting, which I think would fill in some of the gaps when it comes to motivation and emotion and yeah. personality that we didn't quite get um from. From the script itself. Yeah, and I want to see this new Ron and Hermione and their incredible charisma and yeah. uh, and and just the, the spark that will surely float between them. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, obviously, I would definitely – I would definitely spend <laughs> – the question is, would I spend 600 bucks for me and my kids to see it? Ooh. That's tougher. Are you a good father? Do you do you sometimes wish your kids weren't your daughters? Certainly, if it meant that I could save two hundred bucks, <laughs> yes, like that would be great. Overall, I, yeah. I guess not. I do think it's kind of interesting. Like super side note that two really popular plays right now, Hamilton and Harry Potter, are both about alternate histories, like alternate pasts. Just throwing that out there. Wait, there's no time travel in Hamilton. What are you no, talking about? No, but it's about? a it's a revision of the, of the colonial history that we know and love. Oh, it's I don't know. It's like a version of the colonial history in which everyone sings and raps. Yeah, it's yeah, an alternate. Sure, it's sure. an alternate history. All right, I don't know. Uh, I almost buy the thing you just said. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, let's wrap it up. Okay. Um, so you sort of asked the the question of would you recommend this to to showgoers, but um, Dan, would you recommend this to readers? Uh, I mean, as I said in in my review, if you are a huge Harry Potter fan, obviously it doesn't even matter whether I recommend it. You're going to read it because you want to know what happens, and there's like some stuff to reward you in there, and it's an easy reading experience. It's a play; it will take you like two hours. In a perfect world. If you somehow managed to get tickets to this play, you would just not read the script at all and you would just go to the play and be like wowed and dazzled. That would be my recommendation. Good recommendation. We'll get on that. Uh, Laura, what about you? Even though I spent the last 45 minutes uh, picking apart this text, I would definitely recommend it to someone who has read the other Harry Potter books. Um, It was really enjoyable. It was enjoyable despite the fact that it had a ton of holes in it and despite the fact that it didn't have a lot of the things that made the original books great. And so, yes, I would would recommend it. Ha, I knew you guys secretly liked it. I would recommend it too. I thought it was fun. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thanks so much, guys. This was great. Thank you, Katie. Thanks, Katie. The homepage for the Slate Book Review is slate.com slash books. You'll find the show pages for this and every episode of the Audiobook Club at slate.com slash ABC. Visit our Facebook page where you can leave a comment on this episode. That address is facebook.com slash slateabc. Please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, which helps other people discover the show. Search for Slate Audiobook Club in the iTunes store and don't forget to leave a comment while you're there. Slate's Audiobook Club is part of the Panoply Network. Find out more about all our great podcasts at panoply.fm. Our producer is Jason DeLeon. And thanks for the assist, Dan Bloom. Slate's executive producer is Steve Lichtai. Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. For Dan Coyce and Laura Anderson, I'm Katie Waldman. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.